Is it going? Yeah. Okay. Good evening, folks. My name is Glenn. I'm part of the teaching team here. And we are community creating space for everyone to find hope, beauty, and purpose in the story of Jesus. A community that is rooted, one that is reduced to love, where we are reimagining our faith together. As part of enacting this community vision, we begin moving from a strict hierarchy towards polycentric leadership, from the single absolute to the beauty of a divine symphony, where we take ownership of what could be by discovering how we can be a gift to the community. Let's take a moment to sit in our central text, which names our giftedness, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. It was he who gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that is, to build up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature person, attaining to the full measure of Christ's full stature. So we are no longer to be children tossed back and forth by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by the trickery of people who craftily carry out their deceitful schemes. But practicing the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Christ who is the head. From him the whole body grows, fitted and held together through every supporting ligament. As each one does its part, the body grows in love. Take a moment to pause and just sit in that text. If a piece of that we at times practice the thing called Electa Divina to where we believe that God speaks to us through the text, note that down, what phrase or what section jumped at you. And I'll go on. We see in verses 12 and 16 that the purpose of moving from a central hierarchy to a community-mindedness, from one person dictating to multiple voices entering into that symphony, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry that builds up the body and in 16, it says that the body grows in love. So the gift of ourselves to the community is an act of us being able to grow the body towards loving the multiple gifts. It's not about giving primacy to one, but allowing us to step into a place that all voices can be honored. Today, since we've been going through the APEST, we're going to be focusing on the evangelists. The gift of the evangelist is experience and their ability to help the community as the storyteller. Storytellers equip the church to be redemptive agents, seeing through the secular sacred divide, to witness our lives as sacred vocation. Not all evangelistic voices come out of the church, though. Because the evangelist helps people understand that being human we are culture makers, creating artifacts inside and outside of the church and sharing them with others. Culture is what human beings make of the world. It is our ability to create symbols and um, points of reference for the entire community that we have a shared story. So if we're not just thinking as a limited perspective that these gifts are given only within the church, but these are gifts given to all of humanity, so we hope to create space for them to be witnessed in the church. We, we'd want to point to a couple of the evangelistic um, people that we see in culture. The first one is a guy who speaks out of leadership. His name is Patrick Lencioni. 
writing in Work is Love Made Visible. He says, my message to those who are reading this book in order to become better leaders is simple. Be a whole person first. Get your priorities in order. Know that neither your job nor your leadership defines you. Ask yourself if it might be better to set this book down to invest in your faith, your marriage, or your relationships. If you do, you'll come back better able to digest and apply these principles for the right reasons, with better prospect for long-term success. Hear the evangelist's voice in this, the story that he's creating. Even in his central work that he does business leadership, he's not one who speaks toward church leadership. He's a CEO. So the greatest thing we can do for our lives is not furthering our profits. It's, it's not collecting more, holding on to more. It is actually becoming a whole human. That there's a version of humanity that divests power to step into relationships. And even to the point of saying, my book may not be helpful for you right now. If you don't understand the more beautiful picture of humans is our ability to relate to one another. Like, or stepping to the poets who are often the prophetic or evangelistic voices in our culture that call us back to something, help us see something different. Maya Angelou says, do the best you can until you know better. When you know better, do better. And the beauty of that story she's creating, it's not one that we have to lament, decry, or shame our past. She has this notion of humanity that says you're doing the best you can But never be satisfied in this moment. Know that there will come a time you will know better. And in that moment, do better. So both these voices coming from outside of a specific church tradition or outside of the church building itself are saying, can you see this way of being human that honors, that loves? Do you see this way of wholeness and relationship? Do you see this way of process, as Maya Angelou said? When you know better, do better. She allows space for you to grow, to build, and to know. One of the ways that we walk through together in a shared story is through our SOAP reading plan. If you've been walking along with us in it, you've noticed a severe swing in these stories marking a move towards purifying our ranks. There is good news, but is only for the strictly limited us. God is present, but violently demanding in these stories. The movement towards violent purification begins early on, highlighted in the book of Numbers we've been reading. It reaches its climactic warning in Judges as the people fall further and further away from a hoped-for identity. We begin walking through the text by stepping out of our shared reading. So if, if you have a Bible with you, Numbers 25 1 through 16, we're just going to take a few select verses out of it. When Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to commit sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab. These women invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down to their gods. Jumping down to verse 6, it says, Just then, one of the Israelites came and brought to his brothers a Midianite woman in the plain view of Moses and the whole community while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meetings. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he got up from among the assembly, took a javelin in his hand, went after the Israelite man into the tent, and thrust through the Israelite man and into the woman's abdomen. The Lord spoke to Moses, 
Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. The Lord again said to Moses, treat the Midianites as your enemies and kill them. This shows us a narrow story. Not us is something to fear and, and group together. Because in the passage, we see that Moab and Midian, who are different people, they're different groups, were blended into one enemy of the people. We see that they erased problematic characters to keep the narrow story. They erased Moses' wife that you hear about in Exodus, a Midianite born of a high-ranking Midian priestly family. And they promote easy, absolute boundaries enabling Moses to see a woman brought before him as a threat and celebrate purging by spear as a good in God's name. This is the act of the amateur evangelist. It'd be to react against the story, becoming a blunt instrument, provoking a fight because the ends justify the means and they have an in and out black and white kind of world. A narrow story, as um, Church's movement notes, concerning the immature evangelist, has the evangelist in the early stages of development being enthusiastic and unwise, unstable and consciously or unconsciously manipulative, sometimes seeking to capitalize on emotion. They have tendencies to exaggerate and engage in selective hearing and selective sharing. With a passion to get the good news out, evangelists can justify the means to reach their particular ends without understanding that the means lead to particular ends. Meaning the methods and the tools of which we go forward create the circumstances we enter, like we see in the narrow story in the book of Numbers. Using the tool of a spear, you could only have a strict in and out because you kill those who are not like you. The mature storyteller, however, offers a way forward that challenges in and out Israel Midian to see a more beautiful potential via a different ending. Stepping into a bigger story is the gift of the evangelist. And for that, let's look at Ruth. In Ruth 1.1, in the time of the judges judging, in the time of a great famine, begins the story of Naomi, a Jewish woman with two sons and a loving husband. Now, two sons and a loving husband would mean that Naomi is at a pinnacle place within her community. She not only was able to bear children for her husband, but she was able to bear children that could carry on the family name, thus making her a full matriarch, someone that you could look up to and say, yes, God has not only blessed her, but blessed her with the greatest gift she could give her husband. But then disaster strikes. Husband and sons die, leaving her hopeless And she's not just hopeless, but during this opening of the story, it said that Naomi and her husband left Israel and they were in the area of Moab. So she is hopeless in a foreign land with foreign daughter-in-laws. Ruth 1.16, we come back into the story where the character Ruth replied to Naomi, who's telling her to abandon her, go away, because I'm just going to go back to my, my tribe, my people. And Ruth says, stop urging me to abandon you, for wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will become my people. Your God will become my God. However, 
we see that Naomi, the village, and the narrator won't let you forget that this woman who just pledged to unite her life is always Ruth the Moabite. We see it repeated through the four short chapters of the book in chapter 1, verse 22, chapter 2, verse 2, 2, verse 6, and 21. But in in verse 21, we notice a difference. It's the last use of Moabite to define Ruth as a being. She becomes the daughter and daughter-in-law of Naomi with no shame or guilt. Once we get to chapter 3, verse 10, the rescuing figure Boaz comes in, and Boaz is seen as a righteous man. He's seen as the typification of what the Jewish people would hope to see in a leading man of, of the village who would rescue, who would risk, and who is generous. And it says that he recognizes and celebrates Ruth's value and her virtue. When she asks him to, mar- to marry, to protect, he said, this act of faithfulness is greater than your last. The, ver- the verb used there is chassid, which is a Hebrew term trying to have close relationship. That's a covenantal knowing relationship. So he said, your faithfulness to the covenant, which if you remember in Numbers was the exact question, their lack of faithfulness to the covenant is why they had to purge. He said, your faithfulness is greater than before. And by seeing Ruth the Moabite's true faithfulness, the next act of Hasid or faithfulness is possible by Boaz being invited in to rescue what they would call being the Goel, the redeemer, the one who could take the vulnerable and give them a place of security. The bigger story comes to a climax as marriage to a feared foreigner brings a different ending. Ruth 4.13 says, So Boaz married Ruth and had sexual relations with her. The Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The village women said to Naomi, May the Lord be praised because he has not left you without a guardian today. May he become famous in Israel. She, a Moabite, is better to you than seven sons. The the neighbor women named him saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. Now he has become the father of Jesse, David's father. The matured evangelist didn't create a direct conflict by By adding in the time of the judges, they created a unique story that offered a different ending to the early stories of purification and animosity. This story ends by not just honoring the Moabites, Hasid, their faithfulness, their inherent virtue, but in linking her to the greatest hope for ancient Israel, the bloodline of their greatest king, David himself. So the greatest evangelist expands the narrative to bring liberation to the oppressed and the oppressor, creating space for the kingdom to grow by seeing God's virtue and presence already present in the other person. So as we close, let us remember the subtle grace of the storyteller, which created space for people to change and included in order to grow into a bigger community. Let us consider how to give voice to a bigger story which focuses on inclusion and reflect on who we would write out, who we would see as the Moabite rather than the rescuing daughter-in-law. The redemption of the people by the evangelist began with recognizing the virtue of a single person they couldn't see coming. 
So now it's time for us to enter into questions.